Good evening, everyone. It's Necro Thursday. I'm here with Mike Scandato, and we're presenting to you this week's episode of the Necromaniacs Horror Podcast. How's it going, Mike? It is going well. What's up, everybody? As Mr. Hill just said, you're listening to Necromaniacs Podcast, the greatest horror podcast in the world. I am well. Uh, before we started rolling, I told you uh, last night I went to go see uh, our friends in Sick of It All play with uh, Life of Agony at the Knockdown Center in uh, Queens. You ever been to that venue? No, I haven't. It's really big. Like, it holds like 3,000 people. Um, and I'm not sure why they had this show there, honestly. It probably would have fared better at like Irving or, you know, somewhere like that, or even maybe the Monarch, because now the Monarch, like, they, they redid it a bit and it holds more people. But uh, it was still a fun show. Um, and I got to see uh, the band Pain of Truth, good new hardcore band from Long Island, and uh, had a good time on a Sunday night. Did you do anything this weekend? I was out of town this past weekend. I was oh. um, I went up to uh, the H- up, Upper Hudson Valley for mm-hmm. uh, a weekend away with my uh, my girlfriend. It was a really, nice. really good time. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Not too far from your 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 uh, your origin place, no? Hudson Valley? Yeah. Well, you know, Carmel, New York, where I grew up, is technically part of the Hudson Valley. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, the area that we were in, uh, you know, it was like 20 minutes from where my folks live. And we stopped in to see them on Sunday mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Very cool. Um, yeah. You know, we were also chatting before we got rolling about all the freaking shows coming up and stuff like a lot of good metal coming through between now and the end of the year across the USA, which is always a good thing. Um, and uh, Tombs uh, doing anything before the year is out, Mr. Hill? Yeah, we're there's uh, some stuff that's about to be announced. Nothing, nothing too crazy. But if you uh, if you live in the Northeast, you'll be able to catch us in October. Uh, I not can't announce the shows just yet. That's up to the uh, other guys that are um, the, you know, headlining this, this this operation. But gotcha. You know, if you're in Brooklyn, um, Providence, Rhode Island, Philly area. And Long Island. We're actually playing a show out on Long Island, too. Around, oh, nice. Around Halloween. So keep your eyes and ears open. In the next couple of weeks, uh, there'll be some announcements. Excellent. Very cool. And uh, as I've said before, my old band, Confusion, has a new discography out called Storm the Walls, 1990-1994. Uh, you can get it anywhere. Apple, Spotify, you can get the vinyl or the CD, and we are playing our first show in 16 years on Saturday, September 30th at the Brooklyn Monarch with Terror and Killing Time and a whole mess of bands. It should be a lot of fun. And uh, those are the musical plugs, Mr. Hill. That's awesome. Uh, the yeah. September 30th, you're saying? Yes, Saturday, September 30th. Yep. Okay. Cool, cool. But uh, while we're in the spirit of plugs... Why not uh, plug our fellow horsemen of the old apocalypse? Yeah, let's run it down. So starting the week off, we have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf 666. Who do we have on Tuesday, Mike? On Tuesday, we have the greatest metal podcast of all time, Jackie Smith's own Into the Necrosphere. On Wednesday, ladies and gentlemen, we have the one that started it all, Mr. Hill's own Everything Went Black podcast. On Thursday, you're listening to it right now. Why, it's the Necromaniacs Horror podcast. Uh, on Friday, what do we got, Mr. Hill? Friday is uh, actually, I forgot the name of the new uh, show. They changed the name from Break the Apocalypse. Yes, they changed the damn name. <laughs> so, God damn it. But they are called Spitball Media. Spitball the artist Media. Formerly known, the artist formerly known as Break the Apocalypse is now Spitball Media. Uh, please check it out. If you like uh, your entertainment news, movie news, things of that nature, again, that name is Spitball Media. Uh, On Saturday, take a break, go out, get a drink, uh, hang out with your friends, your loved ones, your family. But on Sunday, make sure you come back for Carl Hikara's own Soul Knox podcast. And I'd also like to add, uh, yeah, we got Mm -hmm. one more 
newcomer to the fold. Of course, we're talking about Iblis Manifestations brought to you by Cheyenne of the Mighty Tribax. And uh, definitely check that out. Um, it's a very good show. He kind of yeah. has a looser schedule when he releases stuff. So just keep your eyes and ears open. Cool, cool. You know, uh, while not a horseman of the apocalypse, um, every day, uh, one of the guys who owns Hell's Headbangers, the, the, you know, excellent metal distro, uh, this guy, Justin Horval, does a YouTube channel. And it is really amusing, Michael. You should yeah. check it out. All right. Yes. You just put in Justin H-O-R-V-A-L on YouTube. And uh, yeah, but, you know, Hell's Headbangers is owned by three brothers, okay? And he's one of the brothers. And he's a very opinionated man when it comes to all things death metal, black metal, etc. And um, people send him questions, and I just get quite a kick out of this guy. Uh, he has uh, interviews, too. He had, like, you know, Malignancy on once. He had Dying Fetus on. He had Paul Ledney of Pro Fanatica on recently. He had Corpse Grinder on, um, you know, uh, the, the singer from uh, Toxic Holocaust. I forget his name. He Joel, was on. Joel Grind. Joel, yep, yeah. Joel Grind. Joel Grind. Uh, he had Athenar from Midnight. But like every day there's new content and it's 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 quite a hoot. So uh, check it out on, on YouTube. I think you also, if you search Hellside Bangers, you could find it as well. I'll definitely check it out. Yes. Um, aside from that, on the viewing front, I, uh, I am nearly, well, not nearly, I just started season five of What We Do in the Shadows. I was very behind, Mike. Oh, man, I'm way behind on it. <laughs> so fucking funny. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite, like, things to just put on at night before I go to bed. Um, it used to be Barry. I finished Barry on uh, HBO, which was fucking excellent. Ended kind of weird, gotta say, but I still loved it. Uh, now I'm on, you know, season five, episode one of What We Do in the Shadows, and it's just, you know, a whole hell of a lot of horror fun. I um I gotta catch up on that. It's, uh, I, I really dug the first three se uh, um, seasons, rather, and uh, mm -hmm. I just, I'm just fucking behind, man. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a good thing to put like for a long time. Like I watch like any kind of crazy ass horror before bed, you know? Yeah. And I feel like sometimes that's not the best thing for me sometimes, okay. you know? Yeah. But sometimes it just, it's just, it, it is what it is. Like if I have something to watch for the show or it's a movie, I was just dying to watch. It just sometimes happens that it'll be the last thing I watch before bed. But now lately I'm trying to like change that up to watch things that are a little more lighter. I don't know why, but I feel like it helps me. I don't, for the next day, if that makes any sense at all. Well, I mean, what we do in the shadows is still, I mean, even though it's a comedy, it's still uh, is a kind of a dark uh, subject matter. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost like a, a little bit of both worlds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, watch the show or at least know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but also if you've never seen the movie it's based on, that is, that is a mandatory horror comedy, uh, in my opinion. Hilarious. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that in the theater. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, um, I checked out two recommendations from, uh, our fellow horsemen. Um, mm -hmm. one of them is a movie called subject, which Brandon Legion uh, hipped me to on our uh, thread, our Facebook messaging thread that we all uh, check out on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. You know, and mm -hmm. it's currently on Sp uh, Screenbox, which I um, about a week ago I re-upped that just to check out some other stuff. Very good, really heavy, like low-budget, um, kind of uh, definitely horror, but with a little bit of like a psychological kind of bent to it, and. Uh, it's a, one of those like low budget films, like there's only a couple people in the cast and, but it's about, you can tell it's about something really personal. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So it's if you guys, American uh, it's American. Yeah. Mm. 
And uh, so if you guys, uh, anyone out there who has uh, Screenbox, check out Subject. And uh, you can thank Brandon Legion at uh, Horrible yeah. for t- telling us about it. And then there's a docuseries, an old docuseries called Hellier, which uh, hmm. Carl Hikara recommended to me. And um, I've, so far I've only seen the first episode called The Midnight Children. And um, it's just, uh, you know, it's like one of these uh docuseries about people who investigate supernatural phenomena you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and um but this one particularly kind of tied into the uh 22 aught swift short story that carl and i did for an upcoming episode of um darkness weaves over at everything went black because the the midnight children and the kind of underground monster that you know was in common theme in the story and the um the hellier episode really cool it's on youtube you can watch it if you're into that kind of thing which i very much am definitely check it out they sound cool uh yeah. i don't have screen box and i don't know if i'm going to plunk down for it but it, i mean you know perhaps i could see it in some other methods at some point yeah it'll probably it'll probably end up on everything else eventually but uh, you know, Hellier, you could watch that on uh, on YouTube. Oh, I forgot to mention this last podcast, and I, and I wanted to. Um, although I've had the Blu-ray for quite some time from Grindhouse, uh, Death Game has made its way onto Shutter, so I watched yes. Death Game finally. Yes, and I, I think we should perhaps cover it because we did, in fact, cover Knock Knock, of which uh, it was it was based on. And I have to say, I really did enjoy uh, watching Death Game, the uh, 70s uh, oddball horror film. Um, I say oddball because it was kind of languished in obscurity for decades until being kind of rescued uh, by Grindhouse. And and it it was actually already rescued by Grindhouse. And then Knock Knock came out. It just was like in long and gestation, as they say, the the Blu-ray for this thing. But uh, it was a really cool movie, um, Death Game. Uh, check it out, kids. No, definitely, man. Sounds good. Yeah. So, of course, uh, we got the Necrophone. And um, if you want to call us, and we've been getting a lot of, a lot of calls lately, which is good. The mm. number is 908-913-0782. 908-913-0782. And... Uh, Leave us a voicemail, and we play it, and, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want. So to kick things off, we got Dave Razor Eater, return caller and listener. Hey, what's up, Necromaniacs? It's uh, your pal Dave Berardi over at the Razor Eater Metal page on Instagram. Haven't called in in a while. Just wanted to uh, recommend some stuff that I've checked out over the last little while uh, that you guys may or may not have seen. Um, trying to think of what I should talk about first because uh, there's been some good stuff um, and some older stuff that I've checked out uh, as per recommendations from you guys. Uh, actually, my wife and I just finished um, the first season of True Detectives, finally, and I regret not checking that out once it first came out because that was brilliant. So we're on to season two. I don't have... Uh, much hopes of it being any better than season one, but uh, I know the show's great, so looking forward to the rest of it. Uh, as far as films go, we checked out uh, the new one called God is a Bullet. It's got Jamie Foxx in it. Um, that uh, main girl from It Follows is in it as well. Uh, that was a great flick. Pretty brutal, um, but well done. It was pretty gripping, I think, throughout. So you guys need to check that out. Borders on horror, but I would say it's more of a dramatic, uh, you could say thriller, I guess. Um, also ended up checking out uh, The Addiction, directed by Abel Ferrara. Um, that's got to be, like, one of the most underrated vampire films, like, of all time. Um, I think it definitely needs to get talked about more. Uh, the way it's shot... Uh, the acting, the dialogue in it, I think is just fucking brilliant. So, uh, if anybody out there hasn't checked out the addiction, you definitely need to check that out. There's a, 
a full version up on YouTube of it um, that's not edited, and there's another version of it up on YouTube um, that is edited. I guess they cut out the blood and stuff, which, you know, cutting out blood from a vampire movie is like cutting out the zombies in a zombie movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and yeah, uh, other than that, uh, there's not much else that I've checked out. Um, we did watch The Girl Next Door on Netflix as well. Uh, and you know what? Talk about a movie that doesn't really need to show much brutality to just make you feel uncomfortable. That one is, uh, yeah, that one's not for the faint of hearts if anybody checks that out. Um, but other than that, looking forward to, uh, more of the episodes of what you guys are going to do. Um, I always love what you guys are doing and, uh, looking forward to, uh, now Dave was saying that he just checked out true detective season one for the first time. And, uh, that must be something, huh? I mean, I'll never feel that feeling again, but, uh, watching that for the first time when it aired was fucking something, huh? Yeah, and and I kind of admire him for being able to binge it, you know, like the first time around when when we all were watching it ten years ago or whenever was uh, you had to wait week to week, you know, so it was very cool to be able to you know rifle through the entire series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I fucking loved season one. I liked season two, like season three. Uh, looking forward to seeing what is next. Um, you know bar is pretty high we will uh see you know what what they pull out i mean jody foster's fucking awesome i mean i just i feel like quality has been uh, you know connected to every season so i i I expect no dip in quality you know the only thing i have to say is that uh nick pizzolato is not involved whatsoever in the new season of true detective so we'll see you know (laughs) Okay, maybe I walk that back. No, um, that's, uh, that's not good. That's yeah. not good. Um, however, it could still be very good. <laughs> I, I have actually heard of God is a Bullet. Um, I think, you know, that's on Netflix. Uh, mm-hmm. The Addiction, of course, the fantastic Abel Farr movie is one of our favorites. Mm. And yes. Uh, yeah, The Girl Next Door, not my thing, but I give I it know. props. Yeah, I mean, I liked it more than you, even though like is a strange word in that movie. Uh, The book is great. I I am a huge fan of Jack Ketchum. Um, So, you know, rest in peace, Mr. Ketchum. Um, Yeah, his other books are fucking killer, too, by the way. If you've only read Girl Next Door, literally pick a random book from him and and you'll dig it. Yeah. yeah, but that is an acquired taste. Girl Next Door is definitely acquired taste, but a good horror movie nonetheless, in my opinion. Next up, we have uh, Andre from Ontario. Uh, salut, les gars. Or in French, it uh, would be, hey, guys. <laughs> I'm Andre from Winchester, Ontario. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, like uh, many others. Love all you guys from the podcasting apocalypse uh, and a fan of all your bands as well, that's for sure. Too many to name, right? Uh, uh, all you guys get me through each and every day, and like throughout each week, it's a blessing. I uh, listen to podcasts, all your podcasts every every time it comes out. It's amazing. So enough of the <laughs> enough of the ass kissing. I have a suggestion for a film for you guys to cover. Maybe not horror, but it's uh, something that I enjoyed pretty much when it came out. It's uh, The Machinist from Brad Anderson of uh, Session 9 fame. It's with Christian Bale and also stars uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. But, yeah, has a small part by fellow Canadian actor Michael Ironside of Scanners. Uh, was it Starship Troopers? Yeah, quite a few other movies. But he was also in, like, another obscure Canadian horror thriller. It's... Uh, Visiting Hours. I don't know if you guys have seen that, too. It's from 1982. Not too bad. Uh, so, yeah, The Machinist, well, Christian Bale. It's, uh, you know, going full-on method acting with uh, 
weight loss and all that shit. It's pretty crazy, pretty intense. Like that was like, I think it was just before Batman Begins, if I remember correctly. You lost all that weight and gained it all for Batman, I think. Anyway, yeah. So it's quite a few what the fuck moments in this movie. It's fucking still keeps me guessing to this day. Pretty cool. Uh, it's not really horror, right? But it's well, it's still pretty fucked up, anyways. Overall, uh, maybe more of a thriller actually. So maybe maybe something you guys can cover. Well, anyways, that's it for now. I don't know what else to say. I'm like <laughs> on the spot. Uh, I will try to find some more recommendations for you guys. More maybe more horror oriented, but I know you guys don't always do full on horror, which is cool. I love it. Uh, don't want to take up too much of your time. So, cheers, guys. À la prochaine. Till next time. All right. Okay, bye. Comment ça va, mon ami? Good to hear from uh, you. Oh, Mike speaking French. <laughs> Good. Goodness yeah. gracious. You know, I agree that the machinist is something that we should cover at some point because we're uh, we're into um, you know the horror adjacent stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. Have you, you seen that? Right. Um, what do you call it? Yeah, like I'm definitely down for that. Um, I just want to say cheers to this man for being a long time listener and first time caller. I liked hearing that, Mike. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks. And, you know, once again, and uh, thanks everyone for listening, man. We really appreciate it. This has been like uh, the long long game for us. You know, we, we just keep on doing it, you know, and appreciate everyone. And thanks everyone for calling in you know it's really cool to hear from from people like you know in this way yeah it's it's a labor of love uh we do this because we love it and uh next year we're hitting the big 10 and uh we'll do something cool maybe we'll trot out a uh a new 10th anniversary t-shirt michael mm, that's actually a pretty pretty solid idea man yes you know? it's uh february i believe february okay. of 2024 get on that i'll get on that mm-hmm. for sure okay yeah um, but, uh, or we could have like a, a, a Jeff quote on the back about how terrible something was. I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of fun to have too, you know? Yeah. I think that's um, really cool. Like I give this a one or something like that. <laughs> I give this a one on the back, but, uh, cheers to you, Jeff, for always making me laugh. Um, tonight folks, we're going back to Mike's favorite decade for horror, the 1970s. Um, We've spent a lot of time in 2023 in the 1970s, haven't we, Michael? Yeah, and I think a lot of that possibly will have to do with the um, unfortunate lack of quality of 2023 films in the horror genre. Yeah. Um, in our group text with our quality control manager, Rennie, uh, we, we were discussing just that. And I'm trying to remember if I got an answer as to if there was anything, say, among, you know, the the new shutter crop that, you know what, it's actually really good. It really needs to be seen. And I'm trying to remember what the consensus was for that, because we had like three stinkers in a row, four stinkers in a row, you know? Yeah, I can't. I think there's like one, maybe. You know, there's <laughs> got to be, and I'm gonna find it, right? Yeah, and the the one that I'm thinking of is controversial because it's not a movie that I can recommend. Yet it is like probably one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh huh. Really? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, look, it's been a weird year, and there was some great movies of the '70s and '80s that either we have not covered or we have not seen and not covered, right? So why not give some of this fucking awesome content, to call it, a shine, right? I mean, just because it's old certainly doesn't mean it's not worth covering. Well, the 70s in general is one of the greatest, you know, decades of film, just filming. Yeah. You know, some of the mm-hmm. best films in history came out in the 70s, in my opinion. No, yeah, totally, totally. But uh, tonight, folks, we're going to 1971 uh, via Connecticut. Uh, John Hancock's own Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Uh, full disclosure, I had never seen this movie. 
and it was my first time watching it uh, for this episode. And I fucking love this movie, Mr. Hill. It, I, might, I might as well have not seen this. I'd seen it so long ago. You know, like mm. I was like a little kid when this came on and I probably saw it like on like uh, Channel 9 or some Chiller Theater or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Apparently it was on that a bunch. Um, like it was on, you know, the syndicated channels, uh, as some of our Northeast listeners would know, your your five nines and 11s back in the back in the day. Um but I just, I guess I never actually saw this. There were a bunch of other movies from that era that I did see in syndication, but not this one. Uh, I probably would have been fucking scared shitless of this one and turned it off when I was 10. So uh, 10 or 11 when that shit was going down. So happy to see it now at 50. <laughs> and also uh, shout out to Mike from Pennsylvania for um, you know, reminding us to do this. this you know, he recommended this movie. And uh, so, yeah, this, that's what happens when you leave a voicemail and you recommend something. We will get around to doing it, talking about it. Yes. Um, you know, maybe not every single time, but quite a bit of the time. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, uh, directed by John Hancock. Not the John Hancock of the Declaration of Independence, Michael. <laughs> he was not around in 1971. So we're going to get that out there right now. You know, uh, different John Hancock. Uh, would we like to run down the cast? Of course. Um, we have Zora Lambert as Jessica. Mm -hmm. Barton Heyman as Duncan. That's her boyfriend. Or or is it husband? I think it's boyfriend, right? Let's see. Uh, husband. 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 Yeah. Okay. Kevin O'Connor as Woody. Their uh, hippie friend, mm -hmm. uh, Mary Claire Costello as Emily, Gretchen Corbett as the girl, and Alan Manson as Sam Dorker. Mm -hmm. In 1971, Manson was probably a pretty uh, interesting last name to have. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's funny, like. That that incident alone has its stamp on so many movies, especially horror movies of the day, as, as we've mentioned before. Um, not so much this movie, though. Not so much this movie. Yeah. Not, not really. No, no post. No, no real post Mansonisms here. However, what is here, though, that could be tied to the Mansonism is the death of the hippie era and the depth of the free love era and the fallout of, say, the post hippie vietnam kind of things a real bleak kind of vibe right um and also this movie is a part of our long series of films of the american nightmare mr hill yeah yeah, yeah absolutely this shares a lot of common ground with some uh some films that we've talked about recently and have uh given very favorable opinions about yes uh this is 1971 it is post dawn of the dead you know uh, a part of that whole, you know, wonderful group of, of people making movies, making horror movies independently in America. And, and that's, uh, you know, Let's Scare Jessica to Death is, is kind of a part of that. Although it was picked up by Paramount for distribution. How about that? Also notable is that Hancock inherited this script from uh, Lee Kalchheim, who mm -hmm. um, initially visualized it this film as like a hippie satire sort of a yeah. comedy mm -hmm. the script was obviously reworked by hancock and uh had this uh you know created a atmospheric very effective horror film uh yeah apparently uh hancock was inspired by the henry james novella turn of the screw and robert wise's film the haunting uh you know this movie okay it's a it's an interesting take on vampirism, folks. Um, and just so you know, we're going to spoil this 1971 movie. So if you haven't seen it, maybe you're going to watch the movie and listen, then listen to the podcast. But uh, yeah, the really old movies do get spoiled on our show. Um, you know, so yeah, a little bit of Turn of the Screw, a little bit of Haunting. So I could actually see this movie, although it's got the vampire vibe, with it also like ghost film vibe no 
I would say it's sort of halfway between a ghost and vampire, you know, film. Yeah. You know what I mean? And maybe like a uh, literary nod to um, M.R. James, the um, excellent ghost story writer from England. You know, I could see this. This has like an M.R. James kind of vibe to it as well. Yeah, and apparently down the line, film scholars have prepared this movie to Chardin Lafon's famous uh, vampire novel, Carmilla, from 1871. Now, a shit ton of movies were loosely based or based on Carmilla. I need to do myself a favor and finally read that. Have you read that? Yes, I have. Um, I think that the only reason why they really reference that is that there's like a, you know, a, a female on female like connection. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And it, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah, that's cool. But I, I don't think it really, for me personally, it doesn't really connect with that. But, you know, whatever. And it's all honestly, good. yeah, the, it's the, the, the quote unquote lesbian vampire trope is is barely in this movie wouldn't you agree like it's like it's kind of like it's it's very barely there for me i don't think you know i yeah, wouldn't say that, I, right? it's a stretch really to say it's that there's right, right. any kind of there's like a a female playfulness that was mildly titillating in the in the film you know what i mean mm -hmm. in kind of like a voyeuristic sort of way um exactly exactly um okay rough plot of the film uh jessica you know movie is called let's scare jessica to death played by zora lampert has been recently released from a mental institution into the care of her husband duncan uh who has given up uh his job as the string bassist for philharmonic and purchased a rundown farmhouse outside of the city What's interesting is that this film was shot all over different parts of Connecticut, but if you watch the movie, they never say where they are, right? No, they don't actually. And uh, hmm. fun fact for you guys out there, um, our very own Jeff Kashid is a uh, native of the state of Connecticut. I thought that That's would be right. interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, love to hear his take on this film. He, I'm going to say... He's probably seen this one, but I don't know for sure if he's seen this one. Um, so, you know, they hightail it to the country, so to speak, with their buddy, uh, Woody. Woody, played by actor Kevin O'Connor. And they get to this, you know, big, beautiful old house. And once they're inside, they find that they are not alone. There's a mysterious drifter there, Emily, a uh, pretty redheaded actress, played by Marie Claire costello but i will say mike right out of the gate she's got crazy eyes would you agree she's got the crazy icy eyes 100 percent um <laughs> yeah definitely and and also the thing we have to note here is that they've already set jessica up to be the unreliable narrator because of her uh you know emotional issues that she has and um the fact that she has a past of possibly seeing things that aren't there. So yeah. they set this doubt on things that are actually happening if she's mm -hmm. uh, perceiving them. So it's, you know, it's that, 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 um, Oh, Hey, that literary trope of the unreliable narrator that gets introduced here. And before we got rolling tonight, uh, listeners, Mike and I were talking about how well this movie pairs with Messiah of evil, which it, absolutely does it would make a very cool double feature anywhere um both of these movies start off with that kind of that unreliable narration right they kind of, it's like that she's kind of talking to the to the, the viewer to the screen about things and she's kind of like i don't know if it's death obsessed it's almost like i believe she was once very afraid of death and now she was in like a graveyard jessica and she's kind of trying to turn a corner with death right yeah she's fascinated by it there's this obsession with death and and she's uh making these like really cool like um you know lead etchings i forgot what mm -hmm. they're called exactly but where you you take the impression and you run lead like a pencil uh, of a gravestone right 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 yeah over yeah. like this like piece of like parchment or whatever the hell it is and and she's hanging them up in the house and you know 
But as you said, Mike, unreliable narrator because uh, she's definitely like you can tell she's obviously probably better than what she was before the movie started. Yeah. But I don't think she's a hundred percent. No, no. And uh, but they what they do a good job of is they show um, the support that Duncan gives her as her husband. You know, mm. he's like he's, you yeah. know, he's pr- protective yeah. of her and he's very understanding and supportive that of her you know emotional issues that she has because when when she they first see uh emily she's like wasn't sure if she was there or not and duncan is like i saw that too like right you're you're not you're not crazy i saw the same thing that you saw so it's okay you know and although it's 1971 by the way we didn't mention the release date released august 19 august 27th 1971 and it's got a running time of 89 minutes at a budget of $250,000. And, uh, yeah. Um, it does not mock, even though it's 1971 and things were rather insensitive back then, it does not mock mental illness, Mike. Would you agree? No, it shows a very um, supportive you know, take mm-hmm. on it. You know, no, no one's, like, calling her crazy. Uh, right. You know, like I said, Duncan is very understanding. Woody is very understanding and supportive. You know, no one, everyone's trying to, you know, help her heal and get on the, the right path of everything. Right. They want to see her well and she's, you know, she's getting better and, and they're all starting. They're all just trying to start a new fucking life, you know? Yeah. And uh, they see that they have this, uh, this squatter living in the house and in, instead of kicking her out, they invite her to stay the night for dinner. Right, Mike? Because they see that there might be a burgeoning romance between Woody and uh, Right. And yeah, Emily. they want to hook up Woody. Exactly. Woody, exactly. who has a fantastically aggressive mustache. Mm, far more aggressive than mine, listeners, as uh, my mustache <laughs> kind of comes in and out. I take, I shave it. I grow it back. I'm, you know, it's way more aggressive than mine has ever been. Uh, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, of course, she busts out a guitar and starts singing. And you can kind of tell right away that like, Emily, Emily's a little wacky, too. If you want to say, you know, poor Jessica is, is the quote unquote crazy one. Uh, if you ask me, Emily is already showing signs that she's a bit off. No. Yeah, we got we got a couple of uh, wild women here, you know, like yes. definitely um, unique, you know, <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you get you get this uh, this sort of vibration of what's going on. Also, it's uh, let's note that on their they, these guys drive around in a hearse too, and they're yes, you know, they're long they drive hairs. around in a hearse that says love on the side. It's like again, I, I read somewhere about how this movie was about almost like the death of the hippie love generation in a way. Like, a, I mean, there have been, a, there's actually quite a few uh, 70s horror movies that you could equate that, you know, phrase to. But th- this one is, to me, is, is kind of yet another one. Because I think the the, the optimism of, of the 60s, although the 60s was very turbulent, uh, by the end of the 60s, when Vietnam is in full swing and the Manson murders and all the issues at the colleges and civil rights. And it's like, by the time you've landed on 71, you're in a, that optimism is like gone, you know, Mike? Yeah. No, it's darker. It's a darker decade for sure. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and as they roll through town, there's all these like old timer, like, they make a point out of these guys being vets too. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Mm. Uh, and they're like, you know, calling them hippies and all sorts yeah, of they, undesirable names. A bunch of times. Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, of course, after they have dinner with her and she spends the one night, they, they see how attractive Woody is to Emily. So they just basically invite her to stay indefinitely which was probably not the best idea in hindsight. Uh, unfortunately, right around, the, right around this time, Jessica stops hearing voices again, and she keeps seeing this mysterious blonde young girl uh, known as, you know, on the cast as the girl or the woman, 
played by actress Gretchen Corbett in the distance that kind of, you know, appears and reappears. And uh, while she's swimming, she's grabbed by something under the water. And, you know, unfortunately, Duncan and Woody uh, fear that she's kind of relapsing, right? See, now this is the interesting part of the movie is that, once again, being the unreliable narrator, some some of these things I believe happened and some I do believe were figment of her imagination, you know, or her uh, cognitive uh, dissonance that she's having, you know? Okay, what do you, like, so you think probably nothing grabs her under the water? No, but I think that maybe the blonde girl is not necessarily uh, real and maybe something that she conjured up in her mind. Mm. You know, and, and then there's also some things that happen in the, um, you know, in, in the voiceover where she, she even des- describes that she feels like certain things are not there and that she's questioning stuff and, and that kind of thing. See, now I thought the blonde girl might not have been there either until a scene a little later where all three of them, Woody and Emily, like, and the husband, Duncan, all, all they all see her together. Like, you know, unless that also was not real, you think? Well, you know, that that's, you know, I kind of forgot about that scene, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. All right, so yeah, there's, okay, there's I stand where They're trying to talk to her, and they're like, they're, they've determined that she's, she's, she's deaf, basically. Right. Um... But she seems very uh, disturbed by Emily. Um, I almost feel like she had a she she ties to the house. Okay, this isn't really explained with the girl. Okay, this is my little perhaps take that she's tied to the house, and she is basically there to warn Jessica, perhaps about Emily and about all the fucked up shit that is going to transpire or not (laughs) because now uh, it's like yeah like you you don't know if if you know if it is in fact real or not you know what i'm saying well i guess the point the the point i was trying to make though is there there was a point where i i I wasn't even sure if jessica was real like that she was like a ghost at some point Mm. you know Mm. and the blonde you know was she a physical tangible form or was she a ghost because there's a lot of like otherworldly stuff going on around the house right um now there's a scene where they go uh duncan and jessica they they go to an antique shop right and they meet this guy and they try to sell the guy a bunch of stuff and there's a, a portrait that they try to sell him and it's uh, of the family that used to live in the house. And, and sure enough, one of the women in the portrait, of course, is pretty much Emily, right? Or, the, yeah. you know, they're saying it just looks like her or whatever. But clearly, it, it, it's her. Uh, and the guy from the antique shop, uh, uh, Sam Dorker, played by Alan Manson, no relation, tells them the story of how there was the woman in the photo her, whose name was Abigail, how King Diamond drowned in 1880 just before her wedding day so she was wearing a wedding dress when she drowned and the legends that she's still alive roaming the island as a vampire which is the first time we're even hearing the word vampire in the movie right yeah and you know once again this is uh not i guess maybe this is where um there's a little bit of similarity with uh camilla you know the the novel yeah because uh, it's not it's not your your Bram Stoker version of uh, vampires or your Eastern European style vampire. It's like a different sort of take on it, you know. Because she's out during the day and yeah, yeah, there's, Emily, there's right? Yeah. Very different. It's she does not sleep in a coffin. She's out during the day. Um, she I would say is a like you said like a ghost vampire hybrid. Yeah, because it's not like she was bitten or there's a curse, you know. She just, oh yeah, she drowned and uh, now she's a vampire, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so after they leave, like the antique shop, um, you know, Jessica was like totally fascinated by that story, and you know, she's she's making a gravestone rubbing again out, you know, by a, you know some graves. 
uh, on Abigail Bishop's grave. Of course, she she finds the grave where she was supposed to be, and she she notices again this blonde woman, you know, the girl, the young girl, and she leads Jessica to a cliff, and at the bottom of the cliff lies that antique guy, Dorker's dead, bloody body. Uh, by the time Jessica runs to find her husband, Duncan, that body is gone. However, this is the scene I'm talking about. Jessica and Duncan together spot the woman, the, the girl with no name on the cliff. And when they catch up with her, they, they start questioning her. But she remains silent and doesn't speak. But when she sees that Emily is approaching, she runs away. Um, that's why I was trying to perhaps wrap my head around the fact that she's some kind of ethereal warning about Emily who like Emily can take the shape of a normal person. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like take the shape of like a mortal. Am I getting too? Yeah, no, that that's kind of what I was thinking myself too. When I was like, you know, her being like not of the physical realm, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for Woody, uh, Emily has set her sights on Duncan, Jessica's husband, right? Of course. Um, and uh, while they're in bed one night, Duncan tells Jessica that, you know, maybe you should go back to New York and resume your psychiatric treatments. And she does not take that well. And she, you know, has him sleep on the couch where, of course, Emily and him wind up, you know, copulating. And I feel really bad for <laughs> Jessica in that in that moment, don't you? Yeah, because, you know, there's there's this, I mean, this is the thing, you know, as we're learning that the house that they're in is Emily's house, you know what I mean? So you're you're thinking originally there's this, like, guest, this wayward young girl that they've allowed to stay there and, you know, that she's abusing her hospitality and that sort of stuff and interloping in this relationship and everything, and but... You know they're they're in the realm of uh, of Emily at this point, mm. aka Abigail. Right, exactly. Um, you know, then there's a scene where uh, Jessica is in the attic and she's staring at that photo that they they wound up keeping instead of selling to the antiques guy, and she's pretty much figured out, yeah, it, it is Emily because all of a sudden she's hearing Emily's voice in her head, and then Emily emerges trying to bite Jessica's neck in the attic. And Jessica flees and locks herself in a room for a while and then eventually breaks free and, you know, hitchhikes a ride into town, right? And this is um, where we start noticing the the weirdness of the town people. Yeah. This is where they all have these, like, lacerations on their neck as if they've been bitten by somebody. Oh, first of all, they're also all men. They're all notice? men. And relatively old in comparison. Yes. No other women. And they're all older men with wounds and, and bandages and stuff. Which I, how I wrap my head around that was she's been feeding off those same people for ages. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, and, you know, she sees D Duncan and, well, she doesn't see Duncan in town. She sees his car. And then she encounters the Sam Dorker uh, antique guy. But sure enough, he's kind of like a, a weird kind of, you know, zombie, you know, kind of like a vampire victim with like a thing on his neck. And he's not the same guy he once was. Um, yeah, this is the part that reminded me a little bit of uh, Messiah of Evil. Yeah. Oh, my God. Totally, totally, totally. Uh, you know, she, she kind of runs away from the townspeople and she's found by Duncan, her husband, who takes her home and, you know, makes her lie down. And sadly, she notices there's cuts on Duncan's neck, uh, her husband, just like the townspeople. Uh, and then out of nowhere, Emily enters the room brandishing a knife with all the townspeople behind her. Uh, Jessica manages to flee all these people, knocking over Duncan's base case, which contains the corpse of the mute blonde young girl. OK, question. That looks pretty real. Do you think yeah. that was real? It's hard to say, man. I mean, mm -hmm. I, 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 to this, I still have no idea, like, right. what the blonde right. woman was. You know, she mm -hmm. real was like, it, was she like Emily? Like, was she like a like an undead 
victim or was she a modern woman or what? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. But I mean, she was killed, but I don't know. It's hard to say what, what her actual, you know, origin is. I'm starting to almost think that she was real and that she wasn't a ethereal creature or anything like that, that she was literally one of the only women left in the town and she was basically trying to warn them, you know, but she couldn't talk. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I gotcha. thought that's kind of what I've kind of landed on. Now, now what do you, and what do you think happened? Like, what happened? Why, why is it an all male town? Like, why? I don't, mm. I'm trying to understand that too. You know, it's like, there's, that's literally the only other woman in this, in the movie. Yeah. Besides and, uh, uh, Emily and Jessica, that is. It is true. That is true. There's no other women in the town. Um, uh, Jessica's running out of the house. She comes across Woody with his throat slashed. So now he is dead as well. Um, this ending has Friday the 13th part one vibes, Mike Hill. Uh, the end with Jason with the boat, you know? Sure. Um, very possibly inspired uh, Sean Cunningham. I'm sure he probably might have seen this movie, you know, eight years, nine years prior. It's, it's possible. Uh, Jessica makes it on to, to uh, you know, uh, a boat, a rowboat, and paddles out to the lake. Um, and uh, a hand reaches out of the water, and she starts stabbing the person whose hand, you know, uh, you know, whom the hand belongs to several times with the pole hook from the boat. And unfortunately, we learn that she is, you know, killing Duncan, her husband, yeah. which... Okay, now here's the thing with that. This makes me now think that Jessica, like, you you may lean to the fact that Duncan might not have even had those wounds on his neck at the time, and that he was he was swimming out to help his estranged, crazy wife who ran to the boat, and she ended up killing her husband. Um, and then as she she looks forward, she sees Emily and all the townsmen. Uh, you know, on the dock watching her and the movie ends. Now, do you think Duncan was trying to help his estranged wife or do you think Duncan was trying to get to his wife to kill his wife? I'm going to stick with the um, with the the idea that this was pretty much like a straight narrative. And remember, all there's no other women beside, that are alive besides Emily. Mm-hmm. So maybe right. that's why Jessica had to go. You know, because like the blonde, if we're going to say that that blonde lady was um, an actual human, you know, modern lady. She she got killed. Right. Right. And the town is just a a town of uh, vampiric slaves to Emily and Jessica had to uh, had to go. She had to go. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm sure there's a lot. I mean, I know that people also think of this as just like a, a psychological thing that's going on. But I, I feel like there's a lot of evidence to say that this is actually a vampire movie. Yeah. I mean, I think Emily was a vampire. The townspeople, I mean, it, this is one one train of thought. Uh, Emily was a vampire. The townspeople were victims. And they were trying to kill Jessica. Because, you know, they ended up at the wrong house. You know what I'm saying? And and Emily had to... Emily's done this before, in my opinion. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at this movie is that Emily was mentally ill. And a lot of this may not have happened at all. And, like, some of it might have happened, but not... Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, some instances might have been very legit you know but others maybe less so although i do like our kind of straight line uh, horror movie vibe of it you know what i'm saying yeah i mean um, maybe after i watch this two or three more times <coughs> i'll um i'll start seeing it the other way but right now i see <laughs> it as like a straight narrative yeah uh but but like messiah of evil if you ask five people about this movie and that movie, you might get five different takes, right? Yeah. I mean, that's great. That's awesome. I love that, that it's, it's debatable, you know, 
Yeah, and I think that's part of what made this movie such a fucking awesome movie. Um, as I was saying about how this movie touches on the decline of the 60s counterculture, uh, the hearse that Duncan and Jessica drive has the word love spray painted on it, and it's been noted as a blatant reference to the death of hippie values. Oh, mm. Okay. Uh, critic and biographer Michael Doyle describes the film as a haunting elegy for the failures of the hippie movement. Doyle elaborates that the film isolates and illuminates the death and corruption of counterculture values of the era and the festering paranoia that occurred through the 70s with Watergate, assassination of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, Jonestown Massacre, Vietnam, etc., etc. Um, I like that, you know? Don't you? Yeah. No, it's... I mean, I'm, that's... What a lot of these horror films from this era were allegories for other things, you know, and they were expressing ideas like that because it was a very cynical point in history in America. Mm. Yeah, this uh, this movie, uh, like we said, shot in Connecticut for 26 days with a budget of 250 K. It's actually pretty good for uh, 1971. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was shot independently, but was, again, picked up by Paramount. And, you know, and, and distributed by Paramount, which is nice. Uh, the name of the company that, uh, you know, uh, initially was making the movie was called the Jessica Company. And then, uh, yeah, they sold it in early 71 to Paramount. Um, Frank Yablanis, uh, a name a lot of uh, film nerds would know, was the executive of Paramount at the time. Uh, he came up with the title uh, as Hancock's original working title once they moved away from the, the comedy thing, was just Jessica. How about that? Huh. I like Let's uh, Scare Jessica to Death, actually. Yeah, That's a good title. it's a great title. And you know what's fucking weird, right? It's a very giallo title. This is not a giallo film, folks. It is not a giallo film at all. But it's actually a very 1971 European-sounding title, isn't it? Like, very much so. Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And that may or may not have been have inspired uh, Yablanis to come up with that name. Who knows, right? Yeah, could be. Um, uh, yeah, they gave out plastic vampire fangs to certain patrons in, in different theaters as a promotion of the film. And a horse-drawn hearse and coffins were parked in front of Manhattan's Criterion Theater during the opening week opening week of the film. How about that? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, at the Criterion alone, it made... Forty-seven thousand six hundred fifty-one bucks. Uh, I mean, for a budget of two hundred fifty k, that's pretty good. Yeah, you got you can't beat that, man. That's that's awesome. Oh, that, that's nice. Uh, yeah, but the, the the legacy of the film has has lived on. It's been written about quite a bit in different horror movies. Um, in two thousand six, the Chicago Film Critics Association proclaimed this movie as the eighty seventh scariest film ever made. The eighty hmm. seventh. Scary yes, I think they have like 200 or something like that or 100. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Um, which is, hey, it's nice to be on a list like that. Uh, it's been mentioned in Time Out magazine, Sci-Fi Channel. Um, apparently, David Lynch was a fan of this movie, Michael. That makes sense to me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, listeners, it has, like Messiah of Evil, a little bit of dreamy quality too, no? Yeah, I mean, because there's there are moments where you're not sure what you're what's actually real and what's not, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, totally, totally. Um, to no surprise, out of our Necromaniacs score of uh, one to five, I actually give Jessica a five out of five. I I also give this a five out of five, Mike. Um, I I love this movie. I uh, had like I I hadn't seen this in. Like my whole life has gone by since I've seen this, really. Yeah. And uh, I'm gonna, I, I'm going to order the Blu-ray, mm. and I'm gonna, my uh, Messiah Evil comes out next month, or, or I mean, we're we're still in August right now, so in October, and I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna watch both of these as uh, some kind of 30 days of Halloween thing. Ah, yes, yeah, not a bad idea. I'm about to check uh, the the release date on the Messiah of Evil Blue. Can't seem to find that goddamn thing, but yeah, it, it, it's it's dropping very soon. Um, 
it's uh, in this very nice deluxe edition. Um, but yeah, listeners, uh, if you like Messiah of Evil and you have not seen Let's Scare Jessica to Death, uh, huge recommend, as they say, yeah. uh, to see this one. Uh, if you haven't seen it in a long time, maybe watch it again. Maybe there's some things you missed. I have a funny feeling uh, on another viewing of this, I'll probably find some some little things here and there that I might not have been aware of or different takes, you know. Uh, yeah, Screen Factory put out this Blu-ray in January of 2020. Uh, the DVD came out from Paramount back in 06. So, uh, yeah, I, I believe both have some extras, but I think the Screen Factory one is a little bit heavier on the extras. Uh, yeah, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, another fucking banger 70s horror film. That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. We'll see you next time, Maniacs. Take care.